You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is part two of my interview with the brilliant Jimmy Carr. At the end of the show, stay tuned and you can hear a discount code for my Soho Theatre shows. Uh, Those are on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of April and there is a discount code available for you which I will sneak in at the end of the waffle uh, that finishes off this episode. Or you can just use your imagination, feel a bit like a hacker and guess what discount code you might think that I would have used at SohoTheatre.com. That's the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of April. I've been having a great time on tour with the show. I was lucky enough to get a five-star review in Bath uh, from the Bath Comedy Festival from Bath Matters, Bath Theatre Matters, some lovely Bathian publication. Uh, But yeah, a a masterclass in stand-up, goddammit. So bloody well come and see me at the Soho Theatre or indeed in Sutton, Wolverhampton, Leicester, Norwich and wherever else we are over the next couple of weeks. The tour is, we're just over the halfway point. So if you'd like to come uh, to any of those shows, you can find out more information from comedianscomedian.com. Now though, the second part of my interview with the brilliant Jimmy Carr. Before uh, before we had this interview in, I, I had certain preconceptions about you. And one of them, I, I thought to myself, I wonder if Jimmy's ever done like a course, like a, like a landmark type course, like a sort of personal or social development type thing. And then when I got to researching you, I went, oh, NLP. Yeah, that I did makes loads a lot of, of sense. NLP, yeah. Can we talk about that for a bit? Because I've never sure, done yeah. any. I, I, my understanding of it is that it's sort of like Darren Browning yourself. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're kind of trying to visualise things in such a way that you can actualise effectively. Is that, I'm in the right sort of territory? Uh, yeah, I mean, ish. It's basically about sort of uh, changing the, uh, the, sort of the fundamental of uh, sort of this thing called NLP, neuro-linguistic programming. The fundamental of it is that the map is not the territory. So how you see the world isn't how the world is. None, uh, we all see it in our own way and no one's right. You know, it's just, it's how it is for you. And actually the easiest thing to change is how you view the world not to change the world. So to change your perspective on stuff. And, and part of that is due to, and it only works, I think, for certain people that are very sort of um, linguistic. They put a, a huge importance on words. Yes. Because it's changing your language and changing the way you sort of, um, you see and hear and, and sort of, you know, talk about stuff actually makes a difference to how you act in the world. I got into it in kind of my, I was in my sort of mid-20s. And I had a job with a good company and I was really sort of, I was doing well, I think, objectively. But I was kind of miserable. I really didn't like it. And I was searching for something. 
and that kind of came up at that some sort of works course it's where you often come to come across it you know you go on an away day mm-hmm. and someone sort of did an away day talking about this thing nlp and i went oh that's I really sort of resonated with me i really sort of went oh i absolutely get that that is how my mind works and I was kind of looking for something and I kind of, I found that. And as a result of doing a couple of courses in that, I kind of found myself thinking, well, no, why, why couldn't I go and be a comedian? I could go and give that a go. Yes. And it kind of allowed me to sort of, the preconceptions about, no, no, that's a thing that other people do. Or yes. you have to have parents in show business that know something or know someone that could get you into that. Or you have to have met someone or, you know, and you, you, you often meet people. I'm often really sort of struck by how, just a chance encounter can make a huge difference. So you often meet people after a show that go, I'd, I'd sort of like to give comedy a go. And you sort of, you always really want to take time with them and go, right, well, just give it five minutes. Just go and do a gig in a pub mm-hmm. and this is how you do it. And this is, go and see some smaller shows first. Yes. Don't just see this and then go and try and yes. do it. Go and see some small stuff. Go and do that. It'll all seem possible. But you really want to encourage that. Yes. Because but you always... don't kind of know, you know, that could be the start of something, Absolutely. you know, big for them. And I think for me, it was like going on a little away day. If I hadn't got, if I'd, not bothered to go on that away day, I might still be working for the oil company. Yes. It's that weird thing of the, that sliding doors kind of thought of, Absolutely. well, life could go a different way. And it, it's, it was kind of opening up to that possibility of, no, you could do that. That could be something that you do, you know, you're, you know. And are there, are there applications of that NLP? Is that still a part of your daily life? I think it's like, it's, yeah, I, I presume so. I mean, I suppose it does talk about um, unconscious competence. So when you're learning a new skill, you start with... Uh, unconscious incompetence you don't okay. know what you can't do and then sort of the next stage is conscious incompetence incompetence okay so you know that you can't do that so when you first go and see stand-up comedy you go i can't do that and then you've got sort of uh conscious competence where you can you can do it but you really have to think about it yeah okay. when you're learning to drive you when you first do a gig you've really got to think about it like my first dvd is conscious competence Okay. I'm a good comic, I can write jokes, but I'm super uptight and I really have to think about this. Yes. And then you get to a stage where you can do panel shows and it's unconscious competence, you're where not... you don't have to think about it and you're just like really relaxed. And I think that the way that that language, well, I mean, if that resonates, if you sort of listen to that and go, oh, that's interesting, go and read more about yeah. you know, NLP. And there's kind of good and bad sides to it. I think there's, like, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, snake oil salesmen in that industry. Yes. Yes. And then there's lots of really good people that are kind of, you know, it's about personal development and sort of thinking about yourself and what you want to do. And I kind of subscribe to that thing of going, the, the fundamental question in life is what do you want? If you can answer that, getting it's comparatively easy. And most people spend very little time thinking about that. So the, the analogy would be, you know, I want a sports car. And you go, no, what, what do you really want? And when you, when you sort of burrow down it's like i want excitement yeah and i want to be respected i want people to think i'm successful i want girls to like me you know whatever that thing is that's fundamental if you can get down to that root that's what you really want it's much easier just to get that direct Mm. so it's quite an interesting thing to go well you know when you get into doing something as kind of ephemeral as as comedy thinking about why why are you doing this and what's your what's your motivation and i think the why is always very important I think that's really fascinating. In the context of what we've just said over the last hour about how you've decided that you've, you know, you, you made a decision that you're not going to worry about it. It's just jokes, you're just going to do it. That's quite an NLP approach, isn't it? That's like, an NLP approach is the wrong way of putting it. But well, it's no, but it like is, the, it's changing my perspective, not changing the world. Yes. Because it's, you know, fundamentally you have to decide, do people live in your world or do you live in theirs? And, and you have to sort of put down a marker and go, well, this is how I'm going to be. This is, this is my little bit of the world and I'm going to live my life in this way and I hope, I hope I'm not hurting anyone. 
But that, it's almost kind of that Ang Rand objectivism of going, well, look, I find... And you have to, as a comedian, I think, go, I find this stuff really funny. I really like this style of comedy. I really like these kind of jokes. And I really like telling them to audiences. And I really like the feedback. And, you know, and if I make myself laugh and I make myself happy, that's better for everyone. Yes. I, I like that. And I, I think the idea that you go trying to be liked as a comedian, just desperate and hacky. Yes. I think it's the opposite of the... I think what the territory we're talking about is the opposite of people's perception of the tortured comedian. And I speak to a lot of them on this show and probably am one, whereby... I feel like were I to do some, were I to investigate NLP, I feel like oh no, that would be cheating somehow because it would. There's me and my thoughts, and I'm trying to create art. And what if I looked into NLP? Then maybe I'd decide that I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be funny and successful, and that would feel cheating somehow. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I I'm not so. saying it is cheating. I'm saying I I'm think kind of I hamstrung. Think, by I mean, that I've thing. seen a lot of interviews with comedians where they just totally bullshit themselves. You know, that thing of, like, the people who go, well, I suppose fame is like a byproduct of being successful yeah. in this industry. And I, su- I suppose it, were I to become famous, I would probably, I mean, I would... Also, you get a lot of comics that never go to, like, they would never go to a film premiere or, you know, a, you know, a showbiz party because they would go, oh, oh, no, that's not, that's not why that's I got not into comedy, this. That's comedy, man. Yeah. That's not, you know, actually, I'm... It's just me not, and the road. Yeah, brilliant. Notebook. Of course, yeah. of course I will go to your showbiz party. Why not? Yeah. Enjoy. I, that, you know, it's, and I think it's a perfectly valid sort of, you know, if, that, if that's the way you want to play it, fine. But I just think sometimes it's, I sort of read things and go, really? Yeah. Really? You didn't want to be famous? You probably, probably didn't need to. I mean, and I know people that aren't famous that never wanted to be that, you know, want to be journeymen. They want to be comics. Yes. And that's their thing. And they never wanted to be on TV and they're, they're doing their own thing and they're doing great. I just think the more honest you can be with yourself, kind of the better. Yes. You seem like a very happy comedian. Are you happy? Yeah. You're very happy. I think it would be... I think I would feel tremendous guilt if I wasn't. I mean, I think there's a... If you've got a life that's this fun, I mean, you're, you're having fun for a living and you work two hours a day. So people, often, people keep on doing this thing of going, oh, the hardest working man in comedy. And my line is always, yeah, that's like being the best looking guy in the Burns unit. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a very low bar. So what, what do you think for you is the, the relative, the percentages of talent and skill that you possess that make you capable of enjoying your work, that make you capable of being as good as you are? How much of it is skill and how much is talent? And how much of it is uh, a, a neurological framework? I mean, I would almost say it's, you know, I mean, I'm tempted to say 99 to 1 in terms of it's hard work and doing it. It's, you know, but being bothered to do it is really the thing. I think it's that, and turning your mind to it. Before I was 26, I'd never written a joke. I'd, I mean, why would you? I mean, I'd made friends laugh, but I didn't quite know how. And it was your thing about saying, oh, I'd never want to uh, read anything, you know, about psychology because maybe it would break the magic spell of yeah. how I'm funny with my own particular mind. The magic spell of me worrying about, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean. But yeah. actually that idea of going, analysing it and looking at it and saying, right, okay, so this is how I'm going to write and I'm going to, put as much time and effort into this as I possibly can and be the best I can be at this. It's a very sort of, rather than waiting for it to come to you sort of organically. I think a lot of people, there's a lot of um, superstition around comedy that, you know, that comics have their thing of going, well, I'm waiting for the Edinburgh show to happen and I'm, you know, I don't want to, I always open with that line and I I don't want to get rid of that joke and... And do you not suffer from any of that? Do you have any superstitions? I do do a little bit, but I think not not so much, not, not in the same way. I think you can be quite trusting in the fact that, you know, you're, you're okay, you've, you've got this far on your wits, you'll be okay. 
self-belief. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, and it's it's um it's I mean I think it's easy not to be not to fall into the trap of being arrogant as a comedian, but uh, you know, social media really helps. If ever you think, do you know what nailed that gig? Just go on Twitter. Go on Twitter. <laughs> see, see what fifty percent of people think of you. You know, because it's it's you never appeal to everyone. So there's always and it's I love the fact that people are, are right. If you think I'm funny, you're right. If I you think I'm line. not funny, you're right. That's part of a that's part of a, a put down of yours, which has a, a, a huge amount of truth in it. Or I've seen that I've seen you say that in the context of setting up a then a you know, a yeah. sting in the tail which is the put down. But I loved it because that's absolutely right. If you're not enjoying this, you're right. And what a disarming thing to say to someone. It reminds me of that one of my favourite ever put downs, that Harry Hill one where he says, Say what you like about me when I get home i've got a lovely chicken in the oven yeah. it's so disarming it's wonderful it's like jujitsu i remember seeing that in uh in pub international do you remember that show yes i do yeah wow that was something i remember going to see that in a tiny little pub near where i lived it was sort of before i'd even thought of getting into comedy this pub the stag in burnham and they used to be, had a lot of comedy night we sort of went down and sort of saw this guy sort of in a couple of comics. And then the second week, it was, it was like Harry Hill and, and Al Murray. Yeah. And, you know, Pub International. And, oh, God, it was amazing. And I kind of, I'd never really experienced anything like that. I think I'd seen one comedy show at university. I'd seen Eddie Izzard okay. at the Corn Exchange, which was superb. But it was so kind of on a pedestal of like, well, he's up there doing that because he's some sort of magic man, isn't he? Yes. Some sort of magic. Yes. I mean, that's just, that's crazy. And then you go and see something in a pub in that setting where you go, there was no stage. I mean, they're literally on the same level as us. And psychologically, that thing of going, oh, maybe this is, maybe this could be done. Yes. But no, Harry Hill back in the day was just exceptional. And because Harry Hill, you don't think of Harry Hill as a one-liner comic. He's not really in the, the when people go, oh, who are the one-liner guys? They think, okay, you, Milton, Gary Delaney, certainly the, the British, Tim Vine, of course. Harry Hill isn't the first name that comes to mind, but he's got some phenomenal one-liners. Yeah, but really they funny. exist in a, you know, it's almost like if, if you and uh, Tim Vine and Gary Delaney occupy a similar sort of universe, then Milton is a sort of kind of uh, universe just attached, like a parallel universe. And then Harry's even further away than that. Brilliant. We're getting into Venn diagrams Yeah, now. we are. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, no, it is odd. I don't, I don't know if people think of me as a one-liner comedian or as a kind of transgressive or edgy comedian or, you know, because you, you see yourself kind of linked with other people sort of online or, you know, whether it's, you know, sometimes it's with Frankie, sometimes it would be with, mm. you know, someone like Stephen Wright or Emo Phillips or, sure. you know, one-liners. Sometimes it's kind of about the, what the content is. Sometimes it's the structure of the jokes. People are sort of looking at it in different ways. Um, it's odd. It's odd when you kind of, you're looking and kind of, because inevitably, sort of as a comedy fan, you sort, it's all very flattering. You sort yeah. of, oh, brilliant. Yeah. But happy to be in the, in the, in the game. What's, uh, what's your favourite one-liner of someone else's? What's your favourite joke of someone else's? And I know, I mean, if someone asked me that question, I was probably a hundred favourites, 10, you know, 90 of which I can't remember right now. But what's the first one that comes to I'm mind? I'm trying to think what the... Do you know what? I, I, it's very, very difficult to, to. I'm always kind of excited by the last thing that I saw. So okay. the, the last comic that I saw that just blew me away was a lady called uh, Michelle Wolf in America, who's uh, on the Daily Show now. Um, I just, I mean, I just saw her do 15 minutes and just went, "Well, everything in there is brilliant." I mean, it's just, and the delivery is incredible. And the, it's, it's more kind of when you see it's, it, that's kind of what I would take away rather than a one liner of going, oh, that's a brilliant joke. Okay. I'm jealous of that. I wish I'd written it. It's more kind of you see a new routine by someone, you just go, wow, that's phenomenal. Yes. Love yes. that. So, with regard to the, the Netflix show that you've just done, this presumably, I mean, that's quite, that's a big, I've seen a lot of the, the kind of the promo for that. You've been saying, hey guys, bad news, no Christmas DVD this year. 
So that's a big choice as a comedian to go, I'm going to hitch my wagon to the I online don't, model. I don't know if it is a big choice. I think that choice was made for me by the general public who stopped buying DVDs <laughs> two <laughs> okay. years ago. Oh, and thankfully I didn't have one out. Um, I think that market's kind of gone. I think it's, uh, it was always a gifting thing, DVDs. And I don't think people yes. watch them in the same way. I mean, the DVD's been out, or sorry, the Netflix special's been out a couple of weeks. And already I'm seeing more people have seen this Netflix special than ever saw one of my DVDs. Because it used to be a gift and you would buy it and then you'd give it to someone at Christmas and then there'd be a lot of telly on over Christmas so they wouldn't get to it until February and then by that stage that life would have moved on yeah, somehow. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think the, the proportion of DVDs, it's like books, the proportion of books that are actually read as opposed to bought. Yes. I remember they did a list once of the, you know, I think it was Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time was the most bought, <laughs> least read book. Yes, okay, yeah. That you, know, about, so, yeah. you know, three million copies sold, four read. Sure. And the idea with comedy DVDs was kind of the same. Whereas now, the thing about Netflix, it's twofold. One, people watch it because it's free. It's like, you, it feels free. You sort of subscribe to Netflix. Yes. And then it's already on your telly. And you feel like, well, I bought that for House of Cards. Yep. Everything else is free. Yes, yes. So I bought absolutely. House of Cards right, for £14. Yeah. Pounds, and then all this other stuff is just free and bonus stuff. So it's great. And then also it goes global the first day. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's like, you, you, you're there and you're just kind of, well, it's everywhere in the world it's yes. just, and that's so good for me because i gig everywhere now yes you i was looking at your tour dates you're a, you've just come back from america last week earlier yeah. this week and you've got just i mean everywhere canada so far this year it's been sort of australia iceland sweden denmark um i'm doing south africa next week okay it doesn't stop and so with the with that the strategy now of releasing something that's global it's interesting when you um when you said on the uh on the Netflix special, there's a couple of jokes that you translate, local references for the sake of America. Oh, yeah. And uh, so arguably the most delicious joke on it is when you briefly refer to money or the tax situation, and there's, there's a wonderful smile as you go, if you're listening in America, don't Google that, I'm a good guy. Yeah. And, and that, that is a really magical <laughs> moment. It really is, man. Yeah. It's so great. So with the strategy then of uh, breaking America, so you no, were... It's not even a strategy to break America. It's, I mean, really, the strategy is to, is to work. Yeah. And to do as many gigs as you can. So um, I don't think America can be broken. No, but by releasing a, a, a global thing, doing like, we're introducing you to America. Yeah, but I think, I, I think I'm fairly well known in America anyway, because okay. YouTube has changed the game fundamentally. Of course. People watch TV shows globally now because they watch it on YouTube. Yes. Or BitTorrent or wherever they want to watch it. If there's a TV show they want to watch and everyone runs their own TV channel is the reality. Yeah. It's, you know, and no one cares what the schedulers think now. You know, the schedulers are going, oh, that show, Cuckoo, you know that show you mm-hmm. like? It's on at nine o'clock on Tuesdays. Is it? We'll mm-hmm. see about that, shall we? Mm-hmm. I'll watch it when I want to watch it. And, and, and so that thing of going, people choose what TV they're going to watch. They like something, they get recommended something else, they, and they find you. So your audience finds you around yes. the world. So you can go anywhere, and the people that like you will, will sort of latch onto it. But in so far, well, how does that relate then to something uh, I was chatting to Mickey Flanagan a while ago? And when he was, I knew Mickey as he was becoming massive, when he had his break. He'd been floating around at the top of the circuit for years with everyone going, God, why isn't Mickey famous? And then, boom, he became famous. And this was sort of said to me in a private conversation, so tell me if it's, if it's uh, out of turn. But he said he'd, got, he'd had a chat with you around that time. And something that you'd suggested was you need to have like, you need to make sure you have no more than one Christmas of being absolutely everywhere. It's almost like you'd be completely ubiquitous and then withdraw and don't go on all the shows for a while because otherwise people will get sick of you. Yeah, I think, yeah, I had one, uh, well, I had one Christmas where I went from being that guy 
to yes. being Jimmy Carr. Yes. And we, we, yeah, we did chat about that. The idea that you go, okay, you need one year where that happens and then you get famous and then you can relax. You don't need to do everything then. Yes. Uh, and almost this, the, the suggestion was that you need to be, you then need to pick and choose a little bit more carefully. Yeah, I think it's a weird, it's a really odd thing, sort of the, the strategy of TV, because you have that year where you get famous and it doesn't matter what criticism there is, it really puts you on another level where you go from being, oh, that guy, to being Jimmy Carr, in my case. And, and then you can kind of pick and choose a bit. Now, if I do it five shows in five nights on Channel 4, everyone just thinks it's normal. No one goes, he's on a bit too much. Yeah, right. But when you first do it, yes. people go, who's this guy? I've never heard of him. He's everywhere. What's going on? And is there an equivalent to that in the digital age that we're describing now of like when everyone's running their own TV channel? Is there the danger of ubiquity that you need to watch out for? I don't think there is because I think people are picking and choosing what... It's, it's narrow casting now, not broadcasting. So it's not like you're... If you're on TV and people go, oh, I hate this guy, but I'm watching it because there's nothing else on. And I can remember... I'm old enough to be able to remember if there was a comedy on BBC Two you were watching it and you were disgusted yeah. if it was bad because you had to watch it because there was nothing else. <laughs> yeah, right. It was that or go and read a book. And frankly, that was not happening. So, <laughs> the, the, you know, it was like you had to watch it. So you were very disappointed if it wasn't great. Now, if, if you're not enjoying something, you just go, well, it's fine, I'll watch something else. There's a hundred shows. There's a, there's a thousand TV comedy things that I can go and look at. And there's everything that's ever happened in the past is available to me right now. So this is still Jimmy. I normally do a So This Is Jimmy, but it's part two. So this is still Jimmy. Really, really grateful to him for all his answers. I really enjoyed this one. I enjoy all of them, but I really enjoyed this one. And thank you to everyone that came to the Soho Theatre. We sold it out. We sold out the Soho Theatre Cabaret Bar uh, for the live interview with Ramesh Ranganathan that will be coming out, if not next week, then the week after. Um, A really good episode. Ramesh is a brilliant, brilliant guest. And like everyone with any class, after the interview, he said, God, was that all right? And it really, really was. Uh, plus he does a tremendous impression of comedian Bobby Mayer uh, so that's one to listen out for as well um, lots lots more uh, great stuff to come from Jimmy we'll get back to that in just a moment um, mentioned at the top of the show of course the uh, the tour is almost uh, well I think we're just in fact we are just halfway had some lovely reviews it's been so great meeting so many of you that have come out and bought bloody t-shirts afterwards thanks you absolute bunch of heroes um, but uh, we had a great show in Milton Keynes. I should say, I, I, this isn't by way of an apology, but in the little Q&A sections that I've been doing after the tour shows, they, those, those have been going really well. I've really enjoyed them. But in the Milton Keynes one, I was tired and I was a bit down. I had a great show. It was a really lovely performance that night. And um, I was just... I think someone asked me, well, on two occasions in the Q&A, someone asked me a question which I then basically didn't answer but went on to moan about how tired I was touring. So uh, apologies to everyone that came to Milton Keynes. And I just wanted to assure you, I mean, it is, it clearly is an apology. I just wanted to assure you that on the rest of the Q&As, I think I've been quite light and frothy and uh, informed, intelligent, insightful, maybe. It's certainly been upbeat. So uh, those of you who were at Milton Keynes, I was driving home thinking, yeah, I probably didn't need to go into detail about how knackered I am. But then, new baby, tour at the same time. It's not super easy, but I'm very lucky to be supported by some very wonderful people uh, and to have a tiny baby, which I wish to eat. And you're not allowed to do that. What evolutionary purpose does it serve looking at your baby and thinking, yeah, I could eat him? <laughs> it doesn't. How can that possibly propagate the species? That's the opposite of evolution. Anyway. 
back to the show. Thank you for your donations. Thank you for those people who've been coming up and doing the secret pressing cash into my palm thing. It's been really good to meet you. It's really nice to, to put faces to Twitter handles and to, to emails and so forth. Um, and thank you to those of you who've donated online. There have been some brilliant, uh, very, very supportive donations coming in recently. Um, and lots of people are signing up for the recurring payment, which I really, really appreciate. If you are not a fan of PayPal, you can do that via Moonclerk. All of the information that you need to set that up is at comedianscomedian.com and press the button that says donate. Um, thank you to I, I. Some people say on their little messages to me, I, sometimes when people send one off donations, there's, there's a little space that they notice and they go, oh, I'll send a little message to Stu. Of course, you can email me info at comedianscomedian.com as well. But uh, when people leave little messages to me, it's great. I've been getting, I feel like we're spreading further around the world now. I've had a couple of donations in from Canada. I've had a couple of people in New Zealand. One or two have always done that over the last few years. But now they are, they are coming in um, with a little more speed, which is very exciting to feel that the show is growing overseas as well. Obviously, it's not overseas from your point of view. Um, but thank you. Thank you to everyone that wants to help continue to make this show the success that it is, that I is sort of inescapable. I've got to stop sounding so humble about it sometimes, I think. But uh, I'm really blown away by your generosity and by how many of you want to support this good thing that we've got going here. So if you'd like to make a, a recurring donation or simply a one-off donation of a, a pound a show, 50 pence a show, or, or just a lump of whatever you would spend on a bottle of wine, then that would be very much appreciated. Comedianscomedian.com, as you know. And also, if you remember, if you don't, if you can't afford it, please, people send me two pounds as a one-off and go, hey, I'm a student, I can't afford it. I really appreciate that as well. The opportunity to get in touch with you is really important. But equally, if you can't spare the money, and I absolutely know that not all of us can, then just pootle over to iTunes and spend two minutes instead uh, giving me a nice review because I always think when I'm looking at other people's podcasts, I don't I don't go into the reviews. Good Lord, no. But uh, just the number of reviews they've got, you go, oh, I get a sense of the size and the heft, the weight of this show. And we're on 400 and something, which is absolutely brilliant. So if you'd like to support us with an iTunes review, then possibly that does something. There's probably some arcane algorithm that whams it up the charts if enough people jump on it. So... By all means, send me some supportive cash. But if you don't want to do that, please continue reviewing it, sharing it with your friends and grabbing their iPhones or Android devices from their sweaty fists, downloading the iTunes or podcast app and subscribing to the show on their behalf. You know they want it. Let's get back to Jimmy Carr. And uh, by all means, email me info at comedianscomedian.com or tweet me at comcompod or please join the Comedians Comedian Facebook group and you can submit questions for future guests in much the same way as two lucky listeners did who are named uh, in my conversation with Jimmy Carr at the end of the show. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about panel games. Okay, yeah, sure. And let's talk about your role within panel games. It's, I was thinking, I often see you hosting them. 
never see you appearing on them anymore, other than to host. Is that, um, is that right? No, I appear on quite a few. I do QI, I do uh, Duck Quacks, I do League of Their Own, I do Celebrity Juice. My question is void. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I appear on quite a lot of them and I really enjoy it when I, when I go and sort of appear. Um, try and do as much sort of prep as possible and try and sort of, you know, get in the right sort of headspace. Um, and I, I love them, but I mean, hosting them is just, is, is, you know, it's a, it's a tough gig because what? you're, you're trying to be as, it's almost like kind of hosting a gig. You're trying to give everyone a moment in the sun. You're trying, if there's six people on cats, you're trying to make sure that everyone gets to get their bit out and you go to them individually and you ask them the right question and to make sure that you're in the right space, that you're laughing at their thing and yes. kind of, you know... That must be Because really we bring up hard. a lot of very new acts as well. You know, on something like 8 Out of 10 Cats, it's always been sort of a place to... It's the first place where a lot of people saw, you know... I, I'm just trying to think of, you know, Catherine Ryan or... or um, probably even Alan Carr back in the day, you know. Mm-hmm. You know it's, it's often... It, that, that's often someone's first bit of telly. Yes. Is a panel show. Okay. So you want them to have a great experience and to really enjoy it and, and to come across brilliantly. So you are... What mistakes... Here's a question. What mistakes do you see newer acts or, or people who are newer to the panel show game? What mistakes do you see people making? Like, do you see people who... And you think, ah, oh, they've underprepared or they don't, they don't have a basic... Come back to a basic fact about themselves. Or I'm like amazed that. Uh, that, uh, people's level of preparation. I mean, I'm, like, I'm amazed sometimes that people will come on a show and they've done nothing. Okay. like a topical or even if you're doing like a topical run through and they've done absolutely no work and you just go oh right i thought like i thought it was like a big break for you oh no okay probably not then okay it's like you know so sometimes that kind of blows you away i mean sometimes it's that thing people get a bit nervous and they say a bit too much or they talk over people uh, and i'm as guilty as anyone i think sometimes you know if i do if i do something like a qi i'm very conscious that it's a it's sort of a volume game and you want to give the editors enough choices so you don't want to just say five funny things and then get out of there. I'm sort of quite in awe of someone like Rich Hall who'll go on QI or our show and literally say four things. And that's kind of all we need for the edit, but he'll just say four things and that's every, everyone's a winner and then he's off. <laughs> okay. So, I would have imagined you were in a similar position to that as well. Are you not? No, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of do a lot of material and okay. a lot of stuff for the room as well that you go, well, that probably won't make the edit, but it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Cats that we do just for the room. Mm-hmm. There's maybe a little bit too rude for TV at that time of night, yes. but we'll do it for the room because it, you know, keeps the atmosphere right and it kind of works. Okay. But I think that thing of you've got to be, uh, I mean, people talk about a generous performer. You've just got to listen is all it is. It's, there's no generosity involved. You've got to listen and be aware of what everyone is saying at all times and to really kind of focus on what point are they making and where are they going with this. Because, uh, you know, the, the amount of times I've been interviewed and someone stepped on a punchline of a joke because they haven't really been paying attention. Yes. I was I, clearly I was going somewhere with that. I was yeah. going to have a laugh at the end of it. Come yeah. on, yeah, yeah. So, so within within the the realm of uh, panel games, I did re- I read in an interview that you you described something as like when you do cats, you need a day to kind of warm down afterwards because you're still in the mode of trying to find chinks in people's armor. Well, you often have a thing where it's you know you go to the newsagent or the bank and you're zinging people, <laughs> and then <laughs> and nothing worse. They're kind of not <laughs> expecting it. They're just what what's happening here? 
This guy's full of sass. Um, <laughs> so your local post office is like, oh, oh God, I hope not posting anything today. <laughs> this guy. <laughs> Don't work um, there on a Friday. Yeah, I, can think, I think sometimes you can get into the mode of it. But I think that's partly the preparation is kind of getting into that mind space where you're kind of... Because often you passively watch a show on TV, and I'll, I'll passively watch... Because uh, I quite like those panel shows. It's a lovely sort of half an hour in good company at the end of an evening. Mm. And you sort of watch them and sort of... I go, God, they're all very quick. Mm. And then when you're in there, it, the adrenaline kicks in and you're just on it. And You're often you, saying things before you've really thought of them. Yes. Do you, do you or have you ever watched back the shows that you've done? Presumably you're on so much now that you can't watch back all of them. No, I watch back a lot of stuff, yeah. I think you, you sort of watch back and sort of go, well, I like that, I didn't like that. And, you know, you're quite, quite critical of, of, you know, what you do on telly. So I think, you, yeah, I think you need to. I think it's the same way as, you know, your stand-up specials. I'm sure people, I'm sure, again, I've read some bullshit interviews of people going, no, I've never watched myself back, I've no idea. Yeah. Really? That sounds like bullshit. <laughs> okay. So when you're just going back to this idea of, of preparing, what does, when you see someone and you think, you haven't prepared for this, what kind of preparation do you mean? Whether they've written jokes on topic? Well, I think it is that thing of, like, if, you, if it's your first time appearing on a, let's say, 8 out of 10 cats, and there's, we're talking about the top five things people are talking about this week, if you've got five things on each topic, that seems about right. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big deal. You want to write jokes. You want to be on these shows you should have an opinion on this. Okay. On every, you know, and that seems to be, I mean, very, very obvious to me that you would, you would do that prep and you would have it in your head. And sometimes people, I, I don't know whether it's nerves that prevent them or whether they think, oh, this is all, I mean, maybe people think, oh, this is all so spontaneous. And, you know, the great thing is, if it is spontaneous and you just have a great show and you're just in the moment, those are the best bits and you're not going to bother getting to the written stuff. Great to have a fallback position there. Yes. Great well, to have some great stuff. Great to have five go. great jokes that you don't yeah. need to use because you're too yeah. busy riffing. Well, yeah. Perfect, yeah. Yeah. And your, in terms of your own uh, involvement in that show, when you're, there's a lovely thing in, in the book that you did with Lucy Greaves, yeah. uh, The Naked Jape, which I read at the time and I've been rereading. Um, but they, you, you, the authorial voice, so I know you wrote it together, talk about the um, uh, watching African drumming and dancing whereby the, uh, the drummers are following the dancers and the dancers are following the drummers. And there's this sort of synergy of, like, no one is in charge, no one's leading. Yeah. So do you, when you're hosting a panel show, are you... Do you have to be in charge? Do you have to be the conductor yeah. of it? Slightly. The, the annoying thing is it's not like that. You've got to be the one yeah. going, right, we've had enough fun on that subject. We can yeah. all move on now. Or if people are having a brilliant laugh and you go, none of this making the edit. None of this is making the really? edit. No, no. You can is... tell now. You're sufficiently experienced. You can go. None of this. Well, is... well, I think. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to go. Okay, look, we've just name checked a child murderer. Oh yeah. Okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> none of that is. We're all having a great laugh, but it's just for the room. Let's move on, everyone. Yes. And your preparation for those shows. You said before, if you're going on QI, you'll look at some documentaries on, on the topics that they're going to be talked about. On, so I know. QI, a... you can't do anything. You, okay. I mean, you really can't. You can't do anything other than put yourself in the mind space of QI. So the mind space of QI would be, I would, I tend to go and watch like an Adam Curtis documentary or you'd go and, you know, read some stuff that's kind of a little bit sort of intellectually challenging uh, and some interesting fact books just to put yourself in the mind space of that show. Okay. Whereas if I'm going on Celebrity Juice, you, I mean, you can't really prep for that show either. Sure. But you can at least have a flick through heat and know who people are. 
Yes. You know, have a bit of a view or listen to some pop music that we're going to be referencing or have an idea and go and, and, and certainly researching the other people on there that are on with you, I think, is always really valuable. Yes, if you can have five good roasting also, jokes about all of them. Well, not even so much the roasting jokes. It's, sometimes it's nice that if you're on a show, um, I was on a TV show last night with Will Arnett, who I'm a big fan of. Oh, yeah. But I hadn't seen his new show yet because it had just launched on Netflix the other day. So I went and watched a couple of episodes of that because you don't want to meet someone and not know what they've done. Mm. Oh, you've seen the thing? No, I haven't seen it yet. I, I want to be able to go, yes, no, I've seen that, and I, I liked it. And then you've got something to kind of build on a little bit. So to sort of know who you're on with or watch a bit of their stand-up and know what they're, they're like. It's a very methodical approach you take. Do you sit on panel shows assuming that everyone else has taken a similarly methodical approach to research, or do you think you're quite unusual in that respect? I think I'm probably quite unusual in that respect. But I like to, I mean, I just think it's that thing of, you know, you're getting paid quite a lot of money to, to turn up and be funny, and you want to deliver every time you always want to be invited back mm. i mean i don't mind i don't care how you know famous or successful you get you want them at the end of the show to go you're great on the show we really want you to come back and do another sure. one it's like a, it's a joy and is is someone like rich hall do you imagine i don't imagine that he's doing research on the people he's going to be i mean i may be wrong because maybe part of the skill is is obfuscating the research is you know taking away the, the working out but i i wonder whether the comic who says, you know, just say Rich Hall is the example, who says four brilliant things and doesn't need to say anything else. Whether, what, what am I asking? Whether, whether a less methodical approach that relies more on kind of, I don't know, if it's always sort of waiting for the genius bits to happen, almost. Yeah, I think, well, I, I, it's Like, fine. he's an improviser. He, he, he is definitely an improviser. He can improvise jokes. And he can improvise, like something is always so often said about Frank Skinner, he just, he thinks in jokes. And I think from what you've described about your research and the way that you write and the, the method you use to write. I think it's, I think you can, I sort of rely on that quite a lot, but I think it's nice to have something in the back pocket. Yes. It's nice to have some, okay, what am I going to, give it just a little bit of thought before doing it. And actually it's, you know, it's, it often pays dividends when, when it's a show where you go, okay, I know what to do here. I know what, you know, especially if it's kind of a newer show that you're doing. So if we put you in uh, in sort of an experimental show, you know what Tommy Tiernan was doing or has been doing recently where he goes on and tries to do nothing that he's ever done before. So a completely improvised show. What would you be like? How would you feel about going into that environment if we said we've we've booked you an hour and you're not allowed to do anything you've pre-written? I think I'd be all right with it. I mean, I think it would largely become audience interaction. And it wasn't allowed to be audience interaction. I don't know what I would talk about. Yeah, no, I think I'd be, I'd be all right. I mean, I think it's that thing of you kind of, uh, you know, again, you sort of live on your words. You'd be very nervous about it. And I think that adrenaline would get you someplace where you would, you know, I mean, maybe it would be slightly more confessional because you'd go immediately to the heart of it and just go, right, well, I'll talk about, I'll talk about something that's very personal to me. And hopefully yes. that'll be an interesting sort of area. Yes. When you did, uh, how many times have you done set list? Because I saw the, the clip of set list that's on YouTube. It's really fascinating to watch you, and I mean this in a positive way, struggle. Like, it's not that you had a bad gig. I think at the end of it, you said, well, we'll call that a draw. I think you did better than a draw. But to watch you actually, that moment I was talking about before about when you're being heckled and we see you go, well, where am I going with this? It's nice to see the cogs moving. It's nice to see the cogs moving. I think that's what Setlist is about, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's about people going, it's almost, I think Setlist is as close as you can get to kind of um, putting a writing room on television. Because yes. a writing room, you know, for a TV show is a lot of people kind of sitting around thinking about stuff and then someone writes it down and it's all a bit quiet and kind of, oh, right, okay, right, that's, that's a good idea. Yep, no, get that down. 
and actually set list is kind of out loud live going could you write something on this subject but it's almost you kind of do that on tv shows kind of naturally you kind of go in and go right these are the top five things this week we need something on trump come on everyone yeah we need a new angle so we all you know have a little think I've not been in those sorts of environments. Just to tell me a bit more about that. We need a new angle on Trump, have a bit of a thing. Well, well, you know, it's that thing of you, you can... Not that you can come up with a great joke, but you can come up with a joke about anything. You know, if you're in a writing room with good people, you sort of feel like, right, we're going to be okay. We'll come up with three or four lines that are joke-shaped about this. And, um, you know, it's, it's always possible. I mean, the, the, I mean, 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown is a great example because we've written, you know, 400 jokes about Susie Dent. Which is, you know, not easy. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, right, what's our angle this week? Well, we'll think of something. Okay, and is that, that's written in a room with yeah. you and Sean and John? And uh, No, 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 that's written in a room with, uh, that's me, be me, uh, Dom English, Christine Rose, Sean Pye, uh, used to be Charlie Skelton back in the day. Uh, you know, you know, it's pe- people that I kind of work with. Okay. Uh, you know, putting the show together. Because we really write a script, the bare bones of that show we would write. And then all the fun kind of happens on the night. Okay. But, you know, the bit down the lens is always written in advance. Sure. And the intros to people are written in advance. Sure. And in that environment, that kind of writer room, those are people you've got a long history of working with who yeah. you know their particular predilections and they know yours. I mean, do they, are they submitting stuff and you're going, that's not really me? Or is it they're now sufficient Again, synergy? Again, the, the hit rate is never, no one's got 100% hit rate. Mm-hmm. You know, so at best it's probably, you know, 20% of the stuff that they think of makes it into the script. But even that's okay. fantastic. It's great, you know, and it's and in a day, you know, you can write 100 jokes and 10 of them make it into a script. Well, great. But it's that thing of working that muscle regularly and writing jokes. And I think if people saw the volume of stuff that we come up with, it's, it's kind of you go, you see what's possible. You see what you can do. Yes. I think there's a lot of people that are very limited by, you know, their first experiences going, right, it's an hour. And then they go, oh, I can't do Edinburgh next year. I haven't, yeah. got, I haven't got any ideas. And they tell you that, like, in October. You go, it's not till next August. You're going to have an hour of funny thoughts between now and next August, aren't you? I mean, you do this for a living. There's no excuse not to. Do you not ever, do you not ever struggle, though? Do you have times when you're like, I'm, nothing's coming out? Do you have any fear that, like, I'm, I might either run out or, you know, those kind of negative things that comics and certainly listeners to this show will be familiar with. The, the kind of long dark nights of the soul where you go, is this really, is the, am I doing the best I can be doing? Is this good enough? Do you have any of those sort of thoughts or have you... Yeah, I think exactly. so. But I mean, I think you do worry that, you know, am I ever going to, you know, write another good show? Or I think the most difficult thing for me is saying goodbye to a, an old show. So right. at the end of, you're starting doing a new show and you've just finished the last one and you're going, oh, it all works so brilliantly. Yeah, it's all, okay. I know it so well. It feels like it's an old, comfortable, wearable pair of shoes and then you're putting on these new clunky boots that you go, well, this isn't anything, is it? Will this do? And then after 18 months of doing that show, you go, oh, this is like a wonderful, comfy yes, pair of shoes. Yes. And it, it kind of, you grow into it. Um, so I think you've always got that kind of slight anxiety that you want this to be... Uh, you know, brilliant. You want it to be a fabulous show, and it, it it never starts off that way. There's always like there's moments. You know, when you start doing previews, there's like you know you, you might have twenty jokes that you really love in the show, and then twenty that you're not as keen on, and then you kind of build it, and there's you put more on that and drop some and put some new ones in. And... So if if the machinery by which you can create a brand new show is now, I mean, how many shows have you taken? Is it like 10, 10, 12? Think, no, yeah, 10. 10, 10 tours. The machinery must be so well-oiled for creating that thing. 
which is a new version of the same format, really, yeah. of the show you did last time. Um, I know, and I don't know how much of this was uh, simply promo for the Netflix thing, but I, I'd read in an interview recently you were saying you'd been really inspired by Aziz Ansari's sitcom, Master of None, and you'd wondered, could I write a sitcom? Oh, it's just an interview question. Would you be interested in doing that? Which, yeah, I mean, sure. But it's, it's a pretty good sitcom. It's a really funny... Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I just wondered, for me, the question would be, if you were interested in trying a different thing within the sphere of comedy that is neither a show like The Ten you've already created nor a writer's room or an individual-driven panel game host-slash-guest spot, if you wanted to do something else in comedy, like, for example, to write a sitcom, would there be... Would your success at the other aspects of your career sort of be a bit of a cage in that you'd need to be prepared to go out and fail? To do something markedly different from what you're already excelling at, you'd need to be prepared for it not to work. And would you be comfortable with that? Uh, I think you probably would be, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really about the, the right opportunity. I mean, it's, it's that thing as well where you're, it's, yeah, you're feeding a beast. You know, if you want to go and do comedy and you want to do it internationally, there are so many shows you can do. And why wouldn't you? They're really fun mm-hmm. and you get to travel and you get to kind of tell people jokes. And the problem is it kind of fills up the calendar. So yeah. you're never left with, you know, I've never got a week off where I'm going, well, what should I, maybe I'll get around to that sitcom idea. It's yes. kind of, it feels like there's so much work involved in that. It's giving up a year of live comedy in order to invest in something that could fail. Well, that's, that's kind of what I mean. If it, it, is there any fear for you in thinking? It's not a fear. It's just that thing of, you, go, I, you know, I'm having a great time doing this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've got a great job and it feels like, it feels a bit ungrateful to sort of be thinking, oh, well, I, what I really want though is to be an actor. Sure. No, I don't think being an actor is as good a job as being a comic, if I'm honest. Do you have anything, you said when uh, me and my friend Pete bumped into you in the street in, in Edinburgh a year and a half ago, uh, my mate said, uh, how are you? And uh, you said, what have I got to complain about? Do you have anything to complain about? No, I don't think so. No, it, it, you know, that would feel, it feels like... It's, no, it's, not from... You've said that, you said something similar to this uh, when I asked you it sort of yeah. maybe an hour ago. And you, you, the recourse was to the same idea that like, oh, it would be a bit offensive if I did have anything to complain about. Yeah, I mean, you can, you, can, you know, but also it's, it's that thing of it's... I suppose what you're... You know, we touched on it with the NLP thing, the, your perspective on life, I think, changes doing this for a living. I think your perspective switches and it turns into... It's a very positive perspective being a comedian. Or, 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 you know, it certainly is for me. My experience of it is you're trying to see the funny side of everything. So even when you're watching the news and something horrific is happening, you're sort of going, oh, there might be something in this. Yeah, there could be a one-liner in this. This tragic <laughs> misery. This, oh, the plane crash. Oh, I think I've got some plane crash stuff. Come on, dust that off. I've got a couple of listener questions that I'd like to ask you, if you have time. There's listeners for this. There's one or two listeners. Okay, fine. Well, <laughs> let's let them both have a question. Um, do you ever, this is a question from Simon James, do you ever stick with a joke that doesn't get such a big laugh just because you like it? Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Sometimes there's... Can you give us an example? Of uh, I'm just trying to think of one recently that I like the... Um, oh, God. can't think of an example off the top of my head but there's certainly stuff i think what i try and do is make it work so i'll sometimes stick with it for months in previews and and just think that there's something in there something in there and partly that's what the visuals are about 
partly okay. those are jokes that I loved that I thought would be part of a stand-up thing, and I just couldn't couldn't get to work. Okay. I mean, I'm just trying to think of something that I stuck with for ages that just I could never make work. And when you see, say- what I never made work Go was on. I had a thing ages ago. You know that big chalk drawing of a man. Yeah. This, on the side of a hill Abbas Giant, whatever it's it? called think, yeah something yeah. like that but I had a joke about that being I just thought that looks like someone murdered a giant <laughs> yeah okay and I tried to make that work but it was there was too much explaining there's yes. a chalk outline of a thing people, you know that thing you might not be aware of that thing that you don't yeah, know yeah, about yeah, sure. well that thing looks a bit like a different thing that didn't happen could have happened but it didn't but it looks a bit like that I could never get that to work but I tried that like 20 times at previews and people just looked at me like eh, do you know what move on yeah, okay. And when so you- no, often, I think it's a weird thing where something really appeals to you. It's often really silly stuff as well that doesn't feel... There's often a couple of flights of fancy or kind of bit, bits of whimsy in my show that I really, really like that just don't feel like me. The, you've got a joke about putting a, a Smarties tubes on a cat's legs. Yeah, make them walk like a robot. Yeah, That's quite yeah. Fun, yeah. That, I've, I've, or I've like, got another. Jimmy, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's a joke about a table tennis champion and a, a giant gorilla having an argument in the Far East uh, about table tennis. Oh no, uh, yeah, about karaoke. Which would be a King Kong, Ping Pong, Sing Song, Ding Dong in Hong Kong, which I find really appealing. I find that a very, <laughs> I find that a very funny thought. But uh, you know, but the has idea, nothing it, it, to do with the rest of my set. But that's a funny idea to me that you go, it's not very me. And yet you're the one, you're steering the ship, you're the person whose sense of humour it's all predicated on. Is that then that it's not very the version of you that you have honed sufficiently? Yeah, no, it just those things don't occur very often. The, kind of, the whimsical stuff doesn't happen very often for me. So when it okay. does, it's kind of a little bit special and that feels like, oh, well, I'll, I'll keep that in there. That's nice. The next show nice you've got a, a wizard hat for five minutes and go, yeah. now we'll do the whimsy yeah, thing no, on a, a magic. <laughs> Um, the question from listener Matt Whitby: Can any audience be one round? Uh, I think so. I think that Bill Burr clip. I'd, I'd, if you haven't seen it, go and watch Bill Burr Philadelphia. Um, yeah, I think so. I absolutely think so. I think I think if you're sort of a comedian and you're, it's also that thing of where, where your attitude is. I think if you say, "Ah, oh, it's a terrible audience," do you know what? Fine. If you want to blame them, blame them. But they're they're living in the moment. Doesn't matter who's been on before. Doesn't matter who you're following. Actually, better to follow someone amazing. Um, who did I follow recently? I was in, I was doing gigs in New York in the comedy cellar and I had to follow Amy Schumer. And when she walked up, when she walked on stage, it was like, it was like a riot. Yeah. I mean, people were just like, I mean, she couldn't be hotter at the moment and like walked out yeah. did a great sack, really, really good 15 minutes of all new stuff. And then walked off and I had to walk on. I was just like, oh, really? Really? I've got to follow that. She went, you'll be all right. <laughs> and were you? Yeah, it was fine. I mean, the, the, the audiences so live in the moment. It's almost that thing of, it depends what your perspective is. So my perspective on that is they've already had a br- they've already had their money's worth. They've already had a great night. Yes. And now you know, oh, something else, great. Okay. It's a bonus. Whereas I think other people can kind of get in their heads and go, oh, they won't like me as much. Well, no, they won't like you as much, but they'll still like you. You you are presumably now of a level of fame where someone like Amy Schumer or whoever Chappelle or you know Chris Rock, some of the biggest names, Louis C.K. They know who you are. You are gig in bills in America. Yeah, I, I know all those things. So, yeah. so you're kind of, would you say... That they would know me, but I mean, I'm, I, it's, that's a different level. Yes, absolutely. That's a different level of, of fame and kind of movie fame. And, and certainly, you know, in America, those guys would be very well known. And in terms of how they think of you as an I, act... I, well, I'm a much hipper comedian in America than I am here. Cause I've Are done, you? I've done lots of telly here okay. and lots of... And I've, you know, sold big rooms and I've been doing it for years, so I'm part of the furniture. 
Whereas in America, it's like, oh, this guy's, he's kind of, it's kind of old school. He does one-liners. He just does jokes. It's quite, it's quite hipsterish. It's quite alternative. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, which is kind of, you know, it's quite nice, actually. It feels like in America, it's like Edinburgh, you know, 2001, 2002. Okay. You get back to being one of the cool kids. Yeah. Whereas in the UK, it feels like, well, you know, you've, you know, I've got my telly stuff going on and I've got my big tour and that's fine. But it means that you, you give up on being one of the cool kids. You, you can't have both. Okay. So is there anything you don't have in comedy that you want? Yeah, I'm very sort of ambitious about, you know, going and doing other things. And, uh, you know, I think it would be fun to play with others. You know, that thing about you get to do panel shows and you get to play with people and be funny with them. And it's, it's, it's a laugh. I think I'd love to go and do a sitcom. I'd love to go and do a film uh, and, and mess around with other people. But, you know, from an aspiration point of view, you know, I put the hours in and I try and work at that stuff, but it's very much... Peter Cook had the best line about it back in the 60s at a cocktail party. Uh, you know, went up to someone and said, what are you doing? And they said, I'm writing a book. And he said, oh, neither am I. <laughs> and I feel that way about sitcoms and films. I feel like, yeah, I'm giving it a go, but I don't know anyone who isn't. You know, in our, in our world, a lot of people are trying to write something and get it to the next level and try and finish it and scripts aren't written, they're rewritten and it takes years and certainly my schedule doesn't help get stuff done. I try not to give myself a hard time about it, but yeah, you do aspire to kind of, to doing more. So where, where are you in the, the life of your current show? How many warm-ups have you done? I'll probably, I've done maybe 10. I mean, actually from the first warm-up, it was clear this works as a concept because that was the worry with the best of was, well, what if it just doesn't work as an idea? What if people just go, no, no, heard this. And it's it works perfectly. So you're so you're warming up the best of. Mm. Oh, that must be fun. You're you're travelling there, I guess, not worrying too much. No, it's fairly. It's kind of you're knocking out the hits, but you're trying to find new ways of doing old stuff, and you're trying to reinvent the jokes for yourself, and kind of find out what the best mix is. And at the moment, actually, it's an embarrassment of riches. There's two hours, ten minutes of material at the moment, and it needs to be a hundred minutes. It needs to be fifty and fifty, and then more audience stuff. Okay. And at the moment, I'm just trying all the jokes and getting through them. And at the moment, it's a little bit too... It's too polished and too frenetic. The pace is a bit... I've upped the pace slightly. I've kind of gone to four jokes a minute because I've got so much stuff. And and actually, I need to rein it back a little bit. They're ending up a bit punch drunk, are they? You're just, yeah, it's yeah. pretty good. I quite like that. Yeah. I quite like the fact afterwards they're kind of a bit... Oh, it's a lot of laughter. And is, there a, is this with a view to releasing this tour, the, the Greatest Hits tour? This tour goes on for three years. So it's this year, 2017, all around the UK, 2018, the world. And do you have any other time available in your life? when you're Presumably, if this is stuff, this, you're going to know it all backwards. I mean, I guess that's always the, the case on tour anyway. If you're, okay, all my evenings are filled for three years. What are you doing during the day? Besides travelling, obviously, there's a certain amount of travelling. Uh, I think faffing around. I mean, you know, walking the dog. I mean, playing tennis, going to the gym, just, you know, hanging out. It's, it's, it's very nice. I sort of have my... Um, my evening off during the day. Yeah. You sort of get up, do a bit of admin, go to the gym or something, and then you have your sort of time off in the afternoon, wherever you happen to be. So it's quite, it's quite a nice, it tends to be kind of slightly quieter or whatever. And, you know, I think you've got to have an understanding other half because we're not going out on a Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. It's never happening. Not ever? I mean, very rarely. I mean, I've had one or two, one or two Fridays and Saturdays off in, my, in the last 15 years. But very few. It tends to be, if, if I've got one off, we're away somewhere. Okay. You know, two or three times a year, we go away. Two last things then. Go ahead. Is, three last things. Is comedy a meritocracy? Yes. 
not to the extent that the best do the best and people that aren't very good don't work. It's a meritocracy in terms of if you are good, you can make a career in comedy. Whereas in music, it's the opposite. of that. It's like, it's all about luck and look. And I think, you know, as far as the circuit is concerned, I think it's a meritocracy. People that are good do well in the clubs and they can make a living being a stand-up comedian. Everything beyond that, roll of the dice. Good luck, right place, right time, getting on telly. You know, so to get to that touring level, I think you need a bit of that behind you. Uh, there's very few people that come up and can tour without the backing of media. But I think to that level, I think it is. And have you... Were there, were there chances you feel you missed or that you didn't take along the way? Did you ever not do something and think, I should have done that? I don't think so. I don't think there's much that I said no to down the years you know I tried early on in my career if you look at things like your face or mine which wasn't really a format of a comedy show it was quite a straight kind of it was an entertainment show mm. and something like distraction I, sort of distraction the, the first thing I saw you on which I think what I mean I remember it being brilliant yeah it was a really fun show to do and I mean there was we did an American version which wasn't as funny they edited it as a game show not as a comedy show so yes. the comedy was kind of stripped out of it, which was a bit of a shame um but yeah, no, I think, I think I was very willing to do stuff that was a bit outside of most people's comfort zones. It wasn't pure comedy. It was a bit more entertainment, a bit more hosting, um, which I think actually did very well for me. What would you have engraved on your comedy gravestone? Oh, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Um... This is the only time he ever died. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a question mark on the end of that. <laughs> you can have longer to think about it. <laughs> I love it. I really enjoy putting people on the spot and just watching, the, like I said before, watching the cogs. Yeah, the comedy gravestone. The, uh, well, I, I, you know, I think uh, died with his boots on would be good. I quite, like, I quite aspire to the, the, the sort of Tommy Cooper die on stage. Yeah, do you? Keep going, yeah. That keep would seem... It would really seem poetic somehow. I've, I've often thought that it is quite poetic that you are blessed with such a ludicrous laugh given what a high-status comedian you are. It doesn't seem quite right, does it? No, yeah. it does. It seems yeah. perfect. It's like April 1st. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's slightly odd. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that thing, you know, I would aspire to kind of to, to work. I really enjoy this life. And I think it's the... It, it sort of doesn't matter at what level. I think if you can just keep going, I think it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting sort of journey. Show, but, you know, there's ups and downs in show business, and I think you just have to kind of, you know, kind of go with it. But I think working would be that's kind of the thing. I really like the fact that people are still work, like George Carlin, just kept working. Did his final special what a couple of months before he died? A month maybe. Um, I really like that. Thanks, Jimmy. Oh, my absolute pleasure. <laughs> So that was Jimmy. What an extraordinary experience. I really felt like we got something out of him that we are not used to hearing. We, it's a different... So many people have said to me, I really, I'm really hearing a different side to him. And, a, and a, it's, a, I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious. One isn't one's persona. So few comedians are exactly the person uh, on stage that they are off stage. But I think a lot of people are very interested to hear how much of a fan Jimmy is. He really is. He's someone who absolutely walks the walk. I didn't go into detail in my interview with him. I didn't particularly jump on the issue of offensiveness in comedy. And I know maybe some people were expecting that. But I feel like we've had that conversation so many times. 
we know how Jimmy feels about it. We know he feels that it's they're just jokes. They're with your friends. If someone laughs, you've got away with it. You're golden, as he said in episode one. And and I think I'm sort of happy to to have focused on other things for now. Perhaps we'll get him on again and, and go into that in detail. But he really is someone that walks the walk. And I think you've got to respect it when someone really does go to the Edinburgh Festival, go and see tons of shows, support shows, retweet about other people's shows. Um, then that is proof enough that that person is a fan of comedy as well as a creator of comedy. And there's just something about that kind of personality that I really warm to for obvious reasons. So that concludes the podcast. Thank you to Nathan Wood for his help in producing and editing the show. Thank you to you for listening. Do rate it, subscribe, share it around the place and, uh, and chuck us a couple of quid if you would like. And remember, the Soho Theatre on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of this month of April 2016 is when I make my triumphant return to Soho and if you're wondering why I'm banging on about it so much it's because I first did a weekend at Soho Theatre in 2011 and it was the weekend it turned out to be after I was booked in months in ahead months in advance it turned out to be the weekend of the royal wedding so very few I mean it was nice thanks if you came to it but a lot more people could have been in there it was like one of those ones you come out of the theatre and look out into the street and you just see a bit of newspaper like tumbleweed being blown down the street uh, because everyone had taken advantage of the royal wedding to get themselves a sweet nine-day weekend. So, uh, barring any floods or catastrophes or acts of God, uh, hopefully there will be rather more people in town and our already healthy ticket sales will go through the roof and then Soho Theatre will wander off and go, holy shit, we should get that guy back every weekend. And I can talk about it more and we all lose ourselves in some insane advertising vortex. Anyway, that's all for now. That concludes the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you soon. So, the waffle. Thank you. Loads of you said, <laughs> more, more than 10 of you, I guess, have been in touch to say, hey, nice advert, where's the waffle? Excuse me, I'm just going to drink some coffee. Mm. So this is it. I never know. I sometimes plan what I'm going to say to you, and then actually there's something to be taken advantage of, something to quite enjoy about not planning it. I don't want this to turn into the, the secret diary of a new dad, so I don't want it all to be Boutros related. Um, although I have, <laughs> I didn't want to advertise this, but a lot of people who've come up and said hello or stayed for the Q&A after the tour show, I do reward them with a photo of the Boutros, and he is a handsome devil. Um, but what will I talk to you about today? What's on my mind? I'm recording a TV show tomorrow night. I'm recording an episode of Russell Howard's Stand Up Central on Comedy Central. And I'm really excited about it because my... It's, well... You know, I mean, the, the TV stuff that I've done as a stand-up, has, I haven't done a huge amount. And in fact, I was thinking about it. If we discount Show Me the Funny, which under the circumstances we should, only because uh, it was a sort of a competition. So there was no, like the, the, the editing of that show wasn't really designed to show one at one's best so much as it was to show, to, to, to help tell a particular story. Do you know what I mean? I, I feel like how many excuses do I want to make about this? And what I mean is, I'm not having a pop at anyone. Um, it just wasn't the same as doing a bit of televised stand-up where the job of the people making the show is to make you look great. So um, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sort of regarding this as my first bit of televised UK stand-up. I'm regarding it like that. It is. You would not believe the amount of times I've been round the houses thinking about my set, sending feed, getting feedback from the producers, thinking again and going, actually, should I do it that way? Should I do it this way? And I'm just <clears throat> I just want to reflect for a moment on why I'm that kind of idiot. 
I would love to be the sort of person who turns up, metaphorically throws a cigarette onto the floor and stamps it out and just walks on and does it. Like, like David Baddiel used to, in, in the interview with David Baddiel, he talked about Frank Skinner just walking on stage and bang, there's the stuff. And I am still ferociously, forensically over-analysing every pause and beat. OK, I'm going to do that bit. I'm going to do the Tourette's bit from the show, which is a good story, a good, strong story. And then I think to myself, actually, is it a bit clubby? It's sort of a report of something that happened at a gig. Maybe that, maybe that makes it sort of seem too clubby. And then I'll think, no, OK, I'm going to do the dementia bit. They've asked for that, the, the elderly people stuff, the dementia stuff about my granny. And then I'm thinking, yeah, but I can't open with the dementia bit. I'm on first. I'm always bloody on first. <laughs> Everything I do, I'm nature's opener. Um, so if I'm on first on a televised thing, then are the audience going to be warmed up enough for me to walk on and go, right, here we go, dementia stuff. And so, but if I, but normally I use the Tourette's bit as a closer. So maybe actually I do a separate other, like a, a third thing as an option as more of a hello joke. And then you go, well, then I haven't got time to do the other two bits. So like four gigs this week, I've practiced, I've opened with versions of the set that I'm going to go and, and do and get recorded tomorrow night. And um, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I thought it might be interesting <laughs> for you to get an insight into, A, the kind of self-reflective, anxious prick that I am, uh, and also just, you know, a little a little peep behind, uh, behind the scenes. Um, speaking of which, you might be able to hear someone walking past, because I am currently behind the scenes in a TV studio recording this uh, for a different thing. But, um, but yeah, so I've, I, I, what am I saying? I've been... Really boring to live with. Sorry, Boutros. Sorry, Boutros's mum. I've probably been talking about it even more than I usually talk about comedy. And I just wonder whether... I mean, is it, it's, it's got to be better, doesn't it, to just walk into something and go, I'll just do this. All of this stuff is stuff from the tour show. Why don't I just go on and do it? Because I'm proving night after night it's really good stuff and it's well written. But as soon as you take it out of that context, as soon, do you find this with your creative endeavours? You go, I know what this thing is. And then as soon as you take it out and sort of hold it up to the light, you go, oh, well, in the cold light of day, when it's not preceded by 20 minutes of them getting to know me, will that work? Will it work? Will it work? You know, it's the opposite of a peak experience. It's a bell-end experience. I don't know. Uh, a trough, a trough experience. So a trough experience, we're deciding now, thanks uh, after Maslow et al. Um, we're deciding that a trough experience is the opposite of a peak experience. It's one where you are gripped with a sort of paralysing concern, a paralysing fear of, uh, of not doing the right thing. And yet this is what it boils down to. Let's look at this. What does it boil down to? Why am I worrying about a TV job, a set? I do sets all the time. I gig almost every night of my life. Why am I worrying about a set being televised? Well, it's the same thing, I suppose, as when you see a picture of yourself or hear a recording of your voice. You go, God, no, I don't look like that to the outside world, do I? I've got this, this self-image that I've built up. And then you see incontrovertible evidence that you look and sound nothing like what you thought. So there's certainly an element of that. And I suppose what it, what it comes back to is the the other probably more major element of it is i mean yeah i guess part of it is you sort of think okay this will be this will be a moment frozen in time you do a gig you you have a great time and you know we all know don't we comedians then see each other and say how are you and they say well i'm, I'm fantastic thanks smashed a gig last night because because the moments are so fleeting because they disappear they're so quicksilver aren't they 
at that you walk off stage. This is why it's so awful when someone follows you and does better. You walk off stage thinking, yes, the new stuff worked, the classic stuff worked, the improv worked. I just riffed, I spritzed, I did all the stuff. It was great. Oh, oh, I'm king of the world. And then you can hear someone else and she's doing brilliantly after you, and you're like, oh my god. <laughs> you you just end up thinking, oh, it was is it really the the balloon, the bubble popped that fast. So obviously. You televise something, there's a moment when then you go, bosh, that's frozen in time, it better be good, it better be the best version of itself, because it's the version I'll remember. But then also, this is, this is me digging down into strata of, uh, of what it, inverted commas, boils down to, the, the initial point I was trying to make is that it's still, for me, just a battle not to try and be liked. It's the same battle, it's the same battle of... The enemy, for me, the enemy of doing good work is trying to please people. When I'm bland, that's the thing that makes me bland. When I'm slick, that's the thing that makes me slick. And I know slick's often used as a compliment, but I've had it in so many reviews over the years. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to get away from that now. I'm trying to get away from that and just be who I am. You know, take the hurdles out of my way. I talk about this on the show all the time. And uh, and it boils down to like me, like me, like me. I don't mean I'm coming on stage and simpering. I'm naturally a smiley, upbeat kind of a guy. and I'm not attributing that to anything. That's fine. But the worry, the, the pre-show prep and the pre-show nerves for me are all about what, the, what they really you get right down to the kernel of them. It's me thinking, I, but, but what if what if they don't like this? And how nice would it be to approach something like Luke Heggie. Couldn't we all just be more like Luke Heggie? Uh, his album currently available on, it'll be iTunes or Bandcamp or something. Search Luke Heggie album. Remember him, he's, he's in the first 50 episodes or so. Brilliant, dry, dry uh, Australian comic. He doesn't give a fuck. I'm going to try and channel Luke Heggie when I walk on stage tomorrow night to do this, this taping. I'm just going to try and channel Heggie. And uh, I'm just going to, no, not, not too hard, though. Otherwise, I'll just walk on and go, g'day, cunts, and then uh, drop the mic and walk off. But um, that's it, just to walk on and go, there we go. This is the stuff. This is me. This is me enjoying myself for myself. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit wanky when you put it like that. That'll do for now. Um, I'm going to go and do things. Wish me luck. I, I, I think I'm all right to release this. It's weird. People don't talk about... Um, sort of the, the minutiae of TV gigs. It's the sort of thing I'm, I try and winkle out of them as an interviewer. I hope, you know, the, the entire little actor part of me goes, oh, I hope I'm not hexing it by talking about it. But I can't wait. I'm really excited. I think it's a good show. It's a good live venue, big audience. Um, there's the electric ballroom they shoot at. And um, we will see. you when, when you watch it on TV, when it eventually goes out, those of you that have um, a Comedy Central or can access it somehow, which I think is sort of everyone now, um, watch the clip and then come back and listen to this and you'll get a little insight. Hey, I'll tell you what I could do. I could, I might try and do a little, if I remember, if I'm not stressing, I'll try and do a little before and after recording. Um, just before I walk on, after I come off from the, from the taping, you, you inferred that quite rightly. Um, and, uh, and just try and have a little record of that. And you can see the, uh, you'll be able to hear the, uh, the process through which I go. Maybe that's a terrible idea. <laughs> Maybe the worst thing I could possibly do when trying to relax 
is to... Uh, who wants to even hear that? Because if I do well, I'll just be unbearable. And if I do badly, I won't want to record it. So I'm not going to promise you that, but maybe maybe I'll tack that on for a future waffle. Um, but exciting stuff. Really good to, to uh, be doing a thing and going, here we go, here's some stuff. Let's get some more clips up there. Um, and let's keep uh, sort of building it. <laughs> is that all right? Is that enough? That's enough. <laughs> Speak to you soon. Oh, oh, there should be a horse. There should be a horse. Take, uh, uh, I liked it. We had horse and X horse and underscore horse. It's, you know, I mean, we could, we could be something other than horse. Why don't we, uh, why don't we tweet the phrase, if you made it this far in the waffle, oh, and of course, obviously the code for the Soho Theatre shows is FAF, F-A-F-F, they, they just put the generic one on. I'm sure it's totally guessable, but I thought I'd tell you specifically as a, as a little treat. To say thanks for hanging on, listening to the worries and woes. Um, uh, why don't we say, uh, tweet the phrase, I for one shall be going to see Stuart Goldsmith at the Soho Theatre. <laughs> Let's just see if you're, how, how committed, is he, anyone can tweet horse, how committed are you? I for one, these exact words, I for one shall be going to see Stuart Goldsmith at Soho Theatre. Let's just try, I won't abuse you like this again, I'm sorry, I might. Lots of love. Speak soon. <laughs> Lots of love. You're not my mum, but maybe you are my mum. Hi, mum. Lots of love. Speak soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 